Welcome to the podcast. I'm Carla Joy Treadway. I'm here to help you navigate nuanced conversations and explore topics that demand your attention and awareness. There is no topic off limits here. Together, we will seek to find the middle path, explore the polarities of darkness and light, left and right, grace and grit. As a writer, life coach, and seasoned yogi, I'm in the business of awareness and conscious action. I'm here to create space for the conversations that need to be had in order to create solutions that bridge the divide between humans. Sensemaking will use practical, logical, philosophical, and spiritual tools to help us gain well-rounded perspectives on issues that strike a chord. Let's get started. Hello, welcome to the Sensemaking Podcast. I'm Carla Joy Treadway, and I have a very special guest here all the way from the UK, uh, Mr. Malin Baker. Malin, um, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, virtually be with us here in Canada. Um, If you don't know who Malin is, he is the host of Dangerously Reasonable. It's a podcast, it's a YouTube channel. Um, and like myself, he enjoys finding the middle path, discussing common sense ideas, um, helping to bridge the gap of political polarization and helps individuals sort through all the alarmist material, be that, um, culture or politics or climate change, whatever that is. Um, Malin, before we get started, could you uh, tell us a little bit more ab- about yourself and uh, what brought you to this type of work? It's been, first of all, thank you. Thank you for uh, inviting me to have this conversation with you. It's been a relatively longish journey, which started back in the 1980s in my idealistic youth uh, when I got involved with campaigning and then latterly into a sort of politics, I say a sort of politics, it wasn't really the mainstream of politics. And I dabbled with that because I thought that I started off with campaigning because there were things in the world that I was worried about. This was the time when we expected nuclear war to break out any minute. And I realized that saying no to things, which is what campaigning generally does, wasn't really very satisfying. So I wanted to find out where do you go to to build an alternative to say yes to something. And I was young and naive, so I thought, well, maybe that was politics because they create a manifesto with plans and all of that sort of thing. I was there long enough to realise the error of that particular calculation. And I ended up instead working with businesses. Just the start of a movement of a time of something that we called corporate social responsibility then. It's had all sorts of names ever since. And it was really at heart, it, it's a legal away from what we see today in terms of the woke corporation uh, phenomenon. But at that stage, it was a recognition of the fact that you had global corporations with immense power and they were no longer accountable to any national government because they had outgrown the, the nation states that, that they had started with. So then there's this big question, well, you've got this unaccountable power. You can't have that power should be held to account. And so there are all sorts of questions about how do you make sure that global corporations don't exploit slave labor across the world, don't exploit child labor, and don't pollute the planet because it's cheaper than to do that. 
So that was the sort of work that I was engaged with. Businesses are very pragmatic entities, and they were absolutely interested in any of those things that could help them to continue to make good, profitable living, but do so in a way that society would look favourable upon because they recognised that they had become so large that they had to retain a licence to operate. So that taught me, I suppose, in some ways, to look at the world through that pragmatic lens and to always think about what are these organisations trying to achieve? How do you manage negative consequences whilst enabling them to get what they want? And that's the sort of mindset that then I've now latterly brought to this YouTube channel, because a lot of these issues that we are currently dealing with now as a society, they are mostly fought over by people with ideological mindset. And the amount of pragmatism in our public policy, the amount of pragmatism in how we're looking at global challenges seems to be considerably less than you would hope for and that you would expect given the nature of the problems that we have. So I ended up doing this YouTube channel where I just went to first principles. And I said, let's look at all these issues, many of which I'd assumed I knew what the position was. Go back to first basics, look at the research, look at what the different sides are saying, what is factual, what stands up, what doesn't, where are there surprises to be had? And I quickly discovered there are quite a lot of surprises to be had because a lot of the received wisdom and the presumptions that you have turn out not always to be true. And that's kind of what's got me to where I am today. I'm really hearing the question loud and clear um, that you ask a lot of these entities, is it working? Whether that's uh, politics or climate change, like when you mentioned um, like corporate social responsibility, we see so much greenwashing. We see people uh, on Instagram changing their profile picture, thinking that they're doing something for the cause. And, and none of these things are actually actions. Um, I used to live out in Whistler and Whistler is a, is a multi-billion dollar ski town. And they talk so often about making Whistler green and making it sustainable. Meanwhile, you have these million dollar hotels with their doors wide open all day and night, heat blowing out. So you change to organic towels, <laughs> but there's nothing about this place even that's actually sustainable or green it's just greenwashing so uh, the interesting thing in that i mean you're absolutely right but the interesting thing in that as well is, is what comes to be classified as green is a cultural choice as much as it is a practical one so when you look at for instance i, I guess we might end up talking about climate change a little bit but let's just draw an example from that You've had the environmental movement over decades that was against a number of things. And amongst the things they were against was nuclear power. And, and also, of course, they're very worried about climate change. Now, on a practical, pragmatic level, if you accept that you have a global problem with climate change and you need to move to low carbon energy over a set time frame, you would expect nuclear would be a big part of your solution to that because it's a high quality, high energy dense source that doesn't create carbon. But because it's a cultural viewpoint, it's not necessarily one that's looking at the world from a purely research point of view to say, what is the optimal way to ensure that you can 
protect biodiversity and protect the planets and, and the life support systems that we rely upon, then you end up with these counterintuitive mixes. So various things that people are against that don't really make sense, given what they say their objectives are. And that's because ultimately, when it comes down to it, they're living an ideological frame. They're not necessarily seeing it in, in a pra practical sense. Yeah, we're we're living in a strange time where ideology is uh, more important to people than facts. And when you ask for facts, when you ask for proof, or when you ask common sense questions, um, you get cancelled, you get in a lot of trouble because it goes against the ideology. And these ideologies also are infused with people's morality. So you are a more moral person if you believe the certain ideology. And therefore, if you question the ideology, then, um, then you're by fault a, a bad person, even when these questions are using hard science, uh, are using legitimate facts. Yes, and a lot of it comes down to identity. So we know from the psychological research that has been done, Jonathan Haidt has written a very good book summarizing some of this, that most of the opinions that we have about the world tend to come from our peer group. We make ourselves like the people that we like the opinions of our peers is the most influential thing on how we ourselves think. We would like to believe that we've looked at all the facts and we've looked at all the evidence and we came to our conclusion. We post-rationalise that that is how we got to our opinions, but mostly we don't. And we know that that's the case because there is no explanation for why belief in aspects of a global scientific phenomenon such as climate change should in the United States, for instance, fall amongst party lines. I mean, it largely does in many place, other places as well. Canada's not that far away, I guess. But, you know, you see the point. Your, your politics should really have no bearing on your assessment of a scientific phenomenon like that. Climates do not care about your politics. The same way that your likely preferred medical treatment for COVID-19 was likely, especially again in the United States, but not exclusively there, of course, was likely to reflect your political persuasion, your identity in that regard. Again, makes absolutely no sense because viruses likewise don't care about your politics. So the fact that we can look at our communities and see that these beliefs have settled into identity groups tells us that we're not forming those opinions because we're evaluating evidence, we're forming them because we fit in, we conform largely with our peer group. Now, it doesn't mean to say that you have to fall in with that. It's a delicate line to see how you can retain independence of mind without necessarily being ostracized by your peer group, particularly because I still think the majority of people live quietly in the middle. It's just they become quieter in recent years because the people on the fringes have become louder and more condemning of dissent, particularly on the left. I mean, this isn't an exclusively left phenomenon, but the moralizing part of it is certainly more advanced on the left. 
And so the people in the middle, who I still think of a majority, and there are certain polls that suggest that this is true, they have become quiet, but they are still there. So I do think that you can still think independently. It's down to you whether you decide to do it in a loud and vocal way in the way that I do, um, because yes, that can run the risk of getting you accused of all sorts of things and being ostracized from both communities if you insist on really being independent of thought. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah, and there, there are extremists on both sides, of course, left and right. Um, but you, you drew a good point that, you know, we're not going to come up with solutions unless we start having more of these conversations where we can meet people in the middle. And the way we meet people in the middle is through conversation. Well, that conversation is completely erased the moment that you start name calling, for example. So if you disagree with any part of, so in Canada, we have a liberal government. If you disagree with any part of the liberal plan, well, that means this about you. Immediately, you're a racist or a Trump supporter. I mean, it's it's so extreme. Um, instead of just asking simple questions about, well, why do you feel this way? Because if we're just able to have that conversation, um, we'll see that often we're more similar than um, different at the end of the day. We just need that conversation to happen. Yes, it's conversations where you actually listen to the other side and listen to them properly to try to understand what it is that they believe and why, rather than simply listening to them to queue up your next rebuttal line, uh, which is how most of these discussions now take place. The, the transformative thing about doing the YouTube channel for me was that I started doing a few debunking videos, which I thought were going to be straightforward. But by doing that, I said, well, let's let's give these arguments, these phenomena, whatever they, they were, a fair crack. You know, let's look at the evidence behind them with an open mind. And it was the, the act of doing that that actually started to change everything because I had a lot of people who disagreed with me, who came to the channel for various historical reasons that I won't bore you with. But what changed really quite radically was when I looked at their arguments and I took them seriously, even if I came to the conclusion that they were wrong, which often the evidence suggested that they were, not always, but often, the fact that they had been taken seriously, they had been listened to, and that you had engaged their proper argument, not some straw man you know, reduction of their argument, uh, that gained a lot of people's respect and they enjoyed the discussion with you in a much freer way than I think was the standard discourse for, for how those issues were talked about. And, and that was the start really of me really understanding actually I should go all in on this mindset because there is something here that we don't see very often. And since I have spent my life perfecting the art of annoying both sides of any issue, I might as well play to it as a strength really. Um, that's been my experience too. Um, it, it, it was a bit scary speaking out about a lot of these issues in the, in the beginning. And at first there was so much kickback and I lost a lot of friends and I lost a lot of followers. 
And, and it was okay. Cause I felt like these things, they don't make sense and they're worth at least discussing. I I'm not, I'm not an extremist. I'm not a radical. These are, these are really good questions that I have. So I, I just kept going despite the consequences. And what I've noticed is everything that I lost has come back to me then some, you know, my inbox started filling up with these me too messages. And all of a sudden, like the audience started growing more friends around me than ever before, because there's a lot of people thinking the exact same things as you and I, um, they're just too afraid to say it. And that's why these spaces are really important places like podcasts, because if you only listen to the news, which is largely controlled by the left, you might think that you're actually alone in your thinking. Yes. And particularly, of course, we have the challenge that social media platforms reward the extremes because of how they've been following their business model, which is to keep people on their platforms for longer. The algorithms will tend to suggest more and more content to you based on what you've listened to or watched already. And because it's trying to keep hold of you, it will go towards the more dramatic things, which which make people more engaged. And that naturally pushes people to, you know, if they're slightly left, it pushes them further left. If they're slightly right, pushes them further right. And there is some real dynamic working against those who are trying to be interesting, but in the middle. You know, you might call it alt-center or alt-middle, where there's a lot of really challenging, engaging things to do. It's not the mushy center where you don't really have any opinions, but you are not interested in being hard right or being far left. And the algorithms don't really at the moment. I mean, YouTube certainly struggles to understand what to do with that. Um, it's just they don't have a business model around coping with that at the moment. Now, that increases then the pressure on all of us to potentially play to the algorithm. And there are plenty of times when I've done video and I've known full well, if I do this sort of twist on it and do this sort of title on it, it will get five times the audience of the one that I actually want to make. And you have to have a certain degree of faith to say, if this is of value, then hopefully people find it and they will value it all the more because you're resisting doing what everyone else ends up doing. You know, everyone else chases the algorithm because they're chasing the advertising money, they're chasing the memberships and so on. If you can retain the integrity to say, I'm committed to still being good, let's not kid ourselves and just, you know, be bad and then tell everyone it's the algorithm's fault. But if you can face the way that the system works and then decide, no, we are not going to play that game here because that would be selling out the integrity of asking real questions and looking for the actual answers, regardless of where it may take you, whether it takes you into a viral place or more often it takes you into a place where you've got your feet on the ground and it helps you to understand the world, but you can't sell it quite so easily to YouTube or to Facebook or whatever it might be. Yeah, I mean, it it's scary speaking. And then once I got over that, um, I sleep like a baby. I sleep like a baby knowing that I'm going on the internet and just um, telling the truth. And I'm not out there spreading misinformation or crazy things. They're very well-researched things. It's, it's honestly just those common sense questions. And these platforms are supposed to be places for free speech. 
And clearly they're not. There, there's a heavy influence of politics on these big corporations. We're also seeing politics influence public health um, and climate change decisions. And, and that seems new um, just from what I've seen. I mean, I'm only 37, but that it, it seems new that politics have this heavy influence on important decisions. Do you think that's because we're becoming um, more and more globalized? Um, there's not only the the pressure of governments on, on, you know, I don't think our politicians have any business in medicine, for example. Um, do you think it's because of globalization that governments are maybe getting stronger or more authoritarian? I don't think that it's exactly that. I think what it is, is that increasingly we have achieved a we have achieved as a species a scale that we've never seen before both in terms of the weight of human numbers in terms of the ability of our technology our ability to create global problems our ability indeed to solve global problems that we would have had to simply endure in the past like a pandemic um, we have reached a stage that we've never done before now our politics hasn't kept up with it for sure so when you are faced with a genuinely global issue or a phenomenon, how does a national political framework deal with that? Ideally, when it comes to certain key issues, then you build a common platform and you collab collaborate. Obviously, we're not in a moment when that seems to be happening. You're right that politics shouldn't be in medicine per se, but you always have to make some sort of political judgment about what you're going to do. So in 1957, we had the Asian flu epidemic, pandemic, and we did not have a lot of the things that we have now. What we did have was we had the ability to produce a vaccine relatively quickly, and we did. But by and large, the habit of the population then was that these things came along, you expected them to come along, you didn't expect the government to protect you from them, because how could it? It's a virus. And you just got on with life as best you could. That's what they did. And it was kind of fine. Mm -hmm. Now, the Asian flu of 1957 isn't exactly the same as COVID-19. You have to make a judgment as to how bad something is, and what therefore the appropriate response is. However, we've gotten to a point now where we expect governments to do a lot more than we used to because society has become bigger, because technology has become bigger, and the expectations of a population have also become bigger. We now expect governments to protect us from just about everything, which mm. is A, ridiculous, but B, because they have accepted the challenge, they therefore try to do that, um, even if that means telling us to behave ourselves in increasingly pushy ways. So what we had with the COVID pandemic this time, it wasn't so much governments getting into medicine. It was now we were starting to get this interface between scientific advisors for a big scientific based problem, where you then have this overlap between the science and public policy. We have the same with climate change. We're not gonna get away from these. We've got the same with increasing ways that we can destroy ourselves as a society. There's all these different ways now where scientific capability and policy are inevitably overlapping. And we're really bad at managing that overlap. As we have seen, we've seen governments either 
on the one hand, dismissing and ignoring the problem because it's inconvenient. That's one extreme. On the other extreme, you had people trying to micromanage their citizens, you know, taking all sorts of measures that they said, oh, well, these are emergency measures because it's a crisis. We know from all sorts of crises in the history that powers once taken are often very slow to be given back. And they made all sorts of mistakes where they overreached in that way. I don't think they did it because they had a secret nefarious plan to become authoritarian rulers, but the technocratic mindset slipped very quickly and easily into those sorts of solutions. And it's a real challenge because there are people now with the eco movement on the climate change side for whom authoritarian flavored policy is increasingly what they feel is an intuitive response to the problems that we face intuitive to them but I mean they would fail abysmally because people won't put up with it and you lose any kind of license therefore to govern if you try to do those sorts of things but we're not very good at working that through so yeah we are facing new challenges because of technology because of our scale because of the sophistication of what we can do and the lack of sophistication with what we think we want to do and that is going to be the challenge we have to solve over the next 10 to 20 years Mm -hmm. Yeah, the uh, alarmism isn't uh, realistic or helpful. I mean, people have been scared to the point now where they just emphasize safetyism. Protect me from ever dying or ever getting sick. That It's just actually not a, a reasonable metric. And I was listening to a podcast with you uh, where you're talking about our, our favorite little preteen uh, climate change activists. And I think you guys played a little clip from her. And she said, I don't want you to worry. I want you to panic. That's not helpful. No, <laughs> but then she was able to get away with that because she was 15 or 16 or something. I mean, it was the most ridiculous indulgence of the adult global community to put a child on a pedestal who, as far as I'm concerned, she, she hardly ever put a foot wrong. I mean, astonishingly, really, because most children put into that position would have fallen apart. So credit to her. I don't agree with where she has gotten to. And I don't agree with the idea of global governments kowtowing to and being ridiculous around a child that they put onto a pedestal. I think that whole phenomenon was ridiculous. I don't blame her for it, mm -hmm. is all that I would say. You know, she was put into this amazing position and she dealt with it as well as any person ever could have done. But she was wrong about a number of things. You weren't supposed to say so because she was untouchable. She was a child. She's now gotten to be old enough to be wrong, by the way, because <laughs> at the last global <laughs> conference, the COP26 conference, she was outside, not inside. Yeah, but, but once, once she'd gotten to the age of 18, having her on a platform, telling everyone that they're wrong and that they're not doing anything at all and they're all useless, loses its charm. So she's now outside um, protesting as outsiders will be. And, you know, that's her choice because they would let her in, in a flash, if she decided to become the voice to encourage people to do what they want the program to be, to be effective. But, you know, she's fallen in with the protesters and they say no to everything. So she is gradually building her way into this perpetual outsider. But why on earth are we talking about 
a teenage girl in the first place. I mean, it just makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Of course, having someone who gives a voice to the future generations that are at stake and so on and so on, you can see the symbolism of that, it's fine. And yeah, you know, as a, as, a, as a slot at the end of a conference or something, you might well do that. But the amount of weight that was put on to that movement and, you know, grown adult decision makers who were saying, oh, I want to listen to the children. It's their problem. They have to be the ones to come up with the answers. Don't be so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. What pressure to put on children to say we have failed to come up with a solution to this. So now, you know, you haven't even hit 16 yet. It's over to you. I mean, yeah, so it's, it's just an indicator of, of the sort of ridiculous space that we've ended up in with all of this, where we are floundering around to understand how does a human society deal with issues. And, and, and that's just the best indicator you could get of how badly we've been doing so far. Well, and, and that's what drew me to you uh, the first time I heard you. Uh, you were speaking about climate change and and I just thought, wow, this this man is so reasonable this is just a really reasonable plan um and i don't hear that so in canada for example we are trying to eliminate fossil fuels completely um rather quickly and just shift everyone to electric cars and where i live i, I live in a rural area my husband has a construction company um, we rely on snowmobiles, boats, uh, quads, and we need big, heavy trucks that absolutely, at the moment anyways, with technology, are going to need to be gas vehicles. It's actually not an option for us to just say everything electric. And for the person that drives a 15-year-old Honda, for example, it's also not an... A, a, it's not possible for them to go out and buy a $60,000 vehicle. Um, one thing that I've been looking at too, it, you hear like, let's switch from fossil fuels to electric cars, no problem. These things are green and they're better for the environment. And I don't know the answer, but it, it's a, it seems like mining for electric batteries is also extremely harmful to the environment. Um, changing our whole electric grid by 2030 isn't really possible. Um, what can you say about this like quick shift? Like we're not saying let's increase uh, electric, let's increase nuclear as well as still manage our fossil fuels and also add in wind. What I'm hearing in Canada anyways is full stop, fossil fuels are done, let's immediately switch over thing uh, to electric. It doesn't seem possible from the outside. It's largely driven by the fact that it's the expression of a cultural value, an ideology, where certain things are seen as morally good and certain things are seen as morally bad. In the UK, we had a committee on climate change that developed a detailed plan for how you could decarbonize the British economy, how quickly you could do it, while doing it in an orderly way, doing it so that industry has all the energy that it needs in the form that it needs, because some of it is trickier to replace than others, as you've just described yourself. And they came up with a pretty detailed, and I'm sure it was, there were some errors in it, and I'm sure there were some things you could argue with, but a pretty detailed pragmatic plan that showed how you could get to net zero in the UK 
by around 2050. And that is as fast as you could do it because there were all sorts of constraints and things that you needed to put in place in terms of infrastructure before you could move to the next stage and so on. The environmental campaigners poo-pooed that and said, no, 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 you should do it in five years, which is unicorns territory because it's just you know, patently impossible. But that doesn't matter because it's they're, they're not talking pragmatically. They're expressing values. They're expressing morality by refusing to engage with the impossibility of what they're demanding. Now, that's all very well for protesters, but if you're in government, you have to be able to do better than that. And whether or not Mr. Trudeau is fully in that mindset or not, one might argue about, but it is something that worries a lot of people if the way that it's being discussed doesn't seem to accord with the reality of their lives. And this is part of the challenge because with both the pandemic originally, and with climate change latterly, and, and actually before the pandemic, we got to this stage where governments were communicating, not just to give us information, but in order to campaign for us to behave in a certain way, to comply with modes of behavior that they decided were the solution to whatever problem it was we were facing. So we couldn't get accurate information about what was happening on the pandemic unless the figures reinforced the measure that you should obey the rules and stay inside and whatever it was it was at the time. Information that might push the other way, that might give you hope or that might make you think, oh, well, if you're this age group, then you have less to worry about. That wasn't really ever put up front. I mean, it wasn't as though you couldn't find it if you were enterprising enough and research oriented, you know, the information wasn't completely hidden or anything, but it certainly wasn't talked about, it wasn't promoted. And the same with climate change. There are lots of things pushing in all directions with this. It's a complex issue. And what we do about it is even more complex because human societies across the world are facing many different environments, many different economic problems, and have all sorts of existing infrastructure that we rely on. Changing that is something that we do need to do because the problem is a real one. When you look at the core science, you know, it is incredibly robust. There's all sorts of things around the edges you can debate, but the actual core science is very robust. But the question about how fast you do that and what is the smart way to do it that protects the human flourishing society that we have, that protects as many of the things that we value as we can, and, and hopefully continues to build more value for our children and their children and so on. That is the nature of the problem we should be trying to solve. The problem is that the ideologues, the, the, the eco campaigners and the politicians who are heavily influenced by them, not all of them are, of course, but some of them are, they see this as a single variable problem. How much CO2 is there in the atmosphere? That's the only thing that matters. Because if you've talked yourself into a frenzy thinking that the world literally is going to end if we don't deal with this tomorrow, then that becomes that important. Everything else is insignificant compared to this one variable, CO2. But of course, that was never the challenge. The challenge is how do you create the wealth that we need as a society to continue to flourish and for people to be able to do the things that they dream of for themselves 
whilst also reducing CO2 so that we can continue to do that as a society on into the future for hundreds of years, not just decades. It's a different problem because then you have to deal with trade-offs. And the challenge we have with any of these is that when we get this polarized situation, the people on both sides with different agendas have become very unwilling to engage with trade-offs. Mm-hmm. But governance has always been about trade-offs. There's always been winners and losers for every decision that you ever make. Sometimes quite dramatic. You know, the, the Industrial Revolution was a terrible catastrophe for some people whose traditional crafts and way of life was absolutely replaced at a stroke. Sometimes that happens in human development. And, and, you know, it's awful for those that have to suddenly find that they're adapting in ways that are incredibly difficult for them. But that's not the same as addressing one of these global problems and refusing to engage with consequences. You know, if they were going to abolish all fossil fuels in five years' time, the consequences of that sort of extreme action would way outstrip the negative impacts of climate change in the same time frame that they are really so terrified about. Mm-hmm. You know, poverty has killed many more people through history than the climate. The climate's killed quite a few people through history, don't get me wrong, but poverty is the great killer. Mm-hmm. So you have to engage with it. I've heard Jordan's, Jordan Peterson speaking about a, a different solution being helping uh, third world countries um, make their economy better and have them transition from coal to other things that that actually is a is a better plan for climate change do you know anything about about that about helping the third world before focusing on our industrial countries where canada for example contributes actually such a small amount of co2 to our atmosphere um also knowing a country like canada who is very very cold Um, is going to require more fossil fuels because that's how most people heat their homes. It's not even a vehicle issue. Most people rely on gas and propane. Um, Have you heard that? So it's, we have to be able to do both at the same time is, is the short answer. It's absolutely right that the miracle of the last 50 years has been how we have lifted people out of extreme poverty in developing countries. And that has happened at the same time as the population was doubling in size. I mean, it was an incredible achievement, but it's by no means finished. And reliable always on energy is so important for people in developing countries that there is a very strong argument to be said that what you should do is to find the way to give that to them. If it can be done, which sometimes it can, with non-polluting forms of energy, then absolutely great. Where it can't, then in the short term, you do a lot more favours by giving them the energy that kickstarts the development so that then you're creating infrastructure that will enable them to take the next step relatively quickly. Again, people who moralise about this, for whom fossil fuels are a moral evil, won't contemplate that even as a short-term response. But obviously poverty and the consequences of poverty to people is surely to be considered a moral evil. Now, as for us in the developed countries where, you know, obviously it is quite a long journey. It is the same in the UK. We have many homes here that are heated by gas 
and the transition phase from here to there will be quite an arduous one. But that is all the more reason why you need to start. This is the thing, because the, the politicians who have known about this issue since the late 1980s, and when we knew about it then, it was actually a political consensus that we needed to do something about it, just not yet. And they became very good at kicking the can down the road because, of course, long-term benefit for short-term costs, that's not an equation that works well with a short-term electoral political cycle. So we did a lot of kicking the can down the road. And now when you look at where we are in terms of the rates of emissions and the rate of warming, we actually do now need to start getting to grips with this. We do need to start taking action. But again, if we do it on a pragmatic basis where we look at where are the easiest gains, where are the things that we can make the smallest amount of investment for the biggest returns? What are the things where we need to start planning longer term but we can't act on shorter term, but we need to understand how we're going to do it longer term. If we take that sort of engineering approach to the problem, I don't believe that it's a problem that is beyond our ingenuity and the wealth of our nations to be able to resolve. We need to be able to move towards net zero as fast as possible, just not faster. Mm -hmm. And the idea logs have an unrealistic idea about how fast it could be and should be, because they're not engaging with the trade-offs. Well, if they're going to be like that, we need some grown-ups in the room who are going to be able to say, okay, go off with the fairies and let us work out actually how this is going to work with real human beings who have to feed children and the dreams of their children whilst also protecting the environment. And I don't think that's beyond us, really. But we have to get out of this ridiculous, polarised, ideological scrap that we've got. Because the answer to that isn't denying the problem, mm -hmm. but it can't possibly be this moralistic ignoring of consequences of the other side. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, this this binary thinking where if you have questions about the climate change plan, well, that just means you must hate humankind and the earth and you just want it to plunder. Um, I mean, the same exact thing happened in the pandemic if you ask questions about it, then, you know, it, it meant that you were an anti-vaxxer and you just wanted grandma to die. It, it is so extreme. And there's very few moderators. There's very few people looking at the plan itself to say, like, to look at the science and, and say, is this actually a good plan? So like when we look at lockdowns in Canada, for example, John Hopkins University did a study and they found that lockdowns were 0.2% effective in reducing death. Meanwhile, these measures still kind of dangle over us. And we have evidence saying, you know what, that actually wasn't a very good plan and it caused a lot of harm. And that concerns me when we have evidence like that, a prestigious university coming out with the study. And here we are in Canada still trucking along with like the same policies, the, the same issues. And that worries me when I look at something like climate change, just worrying that we're going to just repeat that same pattern where we have our prime minister squashing our biggest industry because um, he's focusing on one thing, killing carbon, but not looking at things like jobs, people being able to work or heat their homes, things that we also have to pull into uh, into the factor. Yes, 
I would be careful about that John Hopkins study vote because um, I remember looking at this at the time and the way they defined lockdowns was incredibly broad mm. and it, it, it came up with certain results partially because of certain choices that they'd made but I, I, I don't think people who then read the headlines of what the study had said entirely understood what they'd done behind the scenes. However, when it came to the lockdown situation, what you did find was that the, the thing that reduced the spread of the virus was changing patterns of human behavior in terms of contact. And largely societies would adapt, people would change their behavior anyway because there was a pandemic. And we saw this in London, in the UK, where the usage of the London Underground plummeted a week before they brought in the lockdown. The lockdown didn't do that. People did that because they thought there's this pandemic. I don't want to catch this. I'm going to change my behaviour in some ways. If I can work from home, I will. If not, I'm not going to go onto a crowded tube train. People do this automatically. You know, they adapt to, to a large degree. And a lot of the benefits of lockdowns that were identified in certain studies really came down from changes of behavior. But ultimately, there were plenty of other places, as Sweden was one of them, of course, that people argued the most about, where you could see that changes of behavior could be achieved without government requiring in this very, very blunt tool kind of a way. And actually, it was a lot better for society I believe, certainly, and, and I think the evidence shows, but I, I don't want to, um, I, I don't want to overclaim, overclaim on that. If you treat people as adults and say you should change your behaviour because the pandemic is a real problem, but use your best judgment. So yes, of course, if your grandmother is on death's door, you may well choose to use your judgment and say it's more important that you have that last moments together than you know, you play safe and all that kind of thing. In the UK, we had the big controversy uh, has been going on recently because the Prime Minister's office, number 10 Downing Street, they had a number of gatherings where they had drinks and so on that have been referred to as parties. And they're saying, well, look, these people were all working together and it didn't really make any difference that they then had drinks at the end of the day and they socialized and so on. And they're right. That was a perfectly sound use of judgment, except they had denied the right to use that judgment to the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. What they did was against the rules that they created. Mm -hmm. You know, so none, so loads of people didn't see their dying grandmother. Loads of people did not gather in any way, shape or form, even though they were desperately isolated or lonely or scared or whatever it might be, they followed the rules. And of course the point isn't that number 10 used their common sense and their common judgment, but they denied the ability of the rest of people to do the same thing. If you say to people, you should change your behavior because there's a pandemic, but use your best judgment, I think most people would have managed with that, don't you? I agree. And I think some people also love codependent systems. They like that safetyism. They like being told what to do. In the last two years, I've also witnessed people enjoying being the finger pointer themselves and telling other people what to do. You know, you have a, a 19 year old hostess that all of a sudden has this power to kick people out of a restaurant. So I think there's some people that uh, enjoyed that 
soft authoritarianism I'll, I'll use again. Um, but as far as like treating people like adults, um, the problem that I really had was, was a, the, the way that they went about it was, was the authoritarianism, but it, it was also the fact that they omitted important information. So because I know that they weren't actually very transparent about the fact that there might have been early treatment or that my risk of getting ill wasn't actually as big as they were making it seem, um, that they were inflating death counts, like many, many things. And I understand that that, that might have been uh, a noble lie. They needed people to act in a certain way. They might have thought actually it was the right thing to do. Personally, if I know I'm being lied to, um, that just makes me not trust them. And I told my doctor, especially that um, I did not trust getting the vaccine for myself because I had seen paperwork from the Ontario College of Physicians and Surgeons telling doctors if they write exemptions or if they recommend vitamin D or early treatment or anything for their patients, they'll lose their license. And I told them under this system, I can no longer trust you where before I knew I could. And I know that you're educated. I know that you care about me, but what doctor wants to lose their license? So just under that system that they created, you've completely broken my trust in public health. Yes. So this is what I was saying before about every communication becomes a campaign communication and it infects everything. It infects how the professions then work and the sort of professional advice that is given. And that destroys trust, as you say. This was the totally predictable, unintended consequence of taking that approach. We had it just as strongly in the UK where we had the chief scientific officer and the chief medical officer doing these regular presentations where they would show scary graphs about how bad it was going to be unless we did X, Y, and Z. And of course, there were certain times when, when we didn't do those things and the scary graphs didn't come true anyway. And then you started to ask questions about, well, what were the models producing the lines on those graphs? And it turned out that various assumptions were being thrown into these models that were highly unrealistic like when the Omicron variant came along. And we already had a study, not just anecdotal feedback, but an actual study from South Africa saying this is less harmful. You know, mm -hmm. it's more virulent, it's, 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 it's more contagious, but it's less harmful. And for at least a week after that study came out, government was still saying, well, you know, we don't believe that it's less harmful. The graphs that were being produced by the medical establishment were building into the... the methodology that it was just as dangerous yeah. and so this was mickey mouse information that we were being given and luckily there was enough of a backlash against it by people within the governing party that they decided they didn't dare do another lockdown and then lo and behold omicron was not as harmful mm. and so it was only because of that kickback that had come because enough mps had started to question the official statistics. There were enough sources of information that had been prepared to stand up and be pirouetted and, 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 and be attacked in public because what they were seeing didn't stack up. And so we, had, we made some real mistakes there. The government had this thing called the nudge unit, which was psychologists 
who were had had developed techniques over recent years about how you gently nudge people into taking certain behaviors. Now, some of that is very straightforward and easy. So how do you encourage people not to cross on a dangerous road crossing or something? You know, you put a barrier up at the points where it would be dangerous for them to cross. Those sorts of things count as nudges. We don't really mind those. But these were different because these were about how do we get people to comply with the COVID rules? And so we had all of these posters saying, look him in the eyes and tell him that you always follow the rules. And this was somebody who's dying in hospital and all this, and, and all this stuff about killing granny and all this sort of stuff was carefully worked out. How do you create fear in the population? Because if they're afraid, then they will take it seriously. Now, what they discovered was that their psychologists could very easily create fear in the population. What they couldn't do easily was when the moment had passed, bring people back down again. People were still scared. And what's more, they demanded of government that they keep lockdowns and they have new lockdowns if there's a problem because they're still scared. You made them that way. And then they demand that you protect them by locking everyone else down mm -hmm. so this was a real act of harm i think that the government brought about by deliberately as a matter of policy scaring its own population to get compliance with an emergency but authoritarian measure mm -hmm. and i think we've learned that lesson because there's been a lot that's been said about it i think the backlash will continue and probably, therefore, hopefully, that can't happen again because it will get called out very quickly. Whether that's still the same in, in Canada or in the United States, I don't know. But we've had that experience in the UK. I feel like the UK approached things a lot more reasonably. They they looked at the virus getting less virulent and, and then they, they backed off on all the policy. And maybe it was the fancy dinners out and that they got caught gathering it. I, <laughs> I'm sure it had a little to do with that. Um, and then in our country, we just pressed on, you know, that fear is real there. There are people who have told me they'll never take off their mask in public, never again. And, and it's really unfortunate. Instead of that gentle nudge as well in our country, our prime minister went on TV and said people that are unvaccinated are racist misogynists. So he definitely didn't go for the gentle nudge approach. And unfortunately, what that did too, when our leader was able to just use one marker for millions of Canadians that way and, and name call and use hate speech. He, by doing so, made it okay for other people to do it as well. So they don't have to listen to me showing a, a graph of Ontario health data showing that there's mostly vaccinated people in the hospital. They don't actually need to listen to that data because I'm racist. And I actually don't have an opinion. I mean, and I think actually that wasn't an accident. That was uh, a really savage strategy. Don't listen to these people. They're just horrible people. Yes, yes. And it's a reminder because I, I tend to talk down the paranoia about creeping authoritarianism because there, there is a real advance of authoritarianism in the world in terms of the number of countries that are run by autocratic governments. It's very easy to see it lurking behind every stone and, and you know, in every mm -hmm. shadow. That said, 
That said, it's a salutary reminder that one of the things that we saw in the genuine um, dictatorships, the, the Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia, was that they were highly effective because they destroyed human networks that would have formed around resistance to what they were doing. And they did that by making it that anyone could become an informant mm. and mm. people were keen to become informants, partially because it was a way of belonging to, you know, the standard thing. And many of your friends would be all be vying amongst themselves to show that they were more loyal than anyone else. And maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Nobody was mm. talking honestly about it. So, you know, the signals you got was that they were. And that meant you could trust nobody. Mm -hmm. So you could have an informal network, but sooner or later, it only takes one person to shop you. And then off, you're off to the gulag if you're mm -hmm. lucky. Now we are hopefully nowhere near there, but it is a salutary reminder of mm -hmm. how that mindset exists within us still as a society. Mm -hmm. After the Second World War, we said never again, but we are still the same human beings. Mm -hmm. And we have largely forgotten the lessons of the Second World War because the people who still survived it, you know, there's very, very few of those left amongst us. So we have to be extra vigilant about the things that could push us in that direction. Now, I don't believe that we're going to end up in a green autocracy simply because of measures that are badly fought out because of climate change. I think what will happen is that they will overreach and there will be a populist backlash and we will end up in unnecessary conflict and division for an extended period of time. However, let's not pretend it couldn't happen mm -hmm. because we do as a species have that within ourselves. And because of technology, you know, we've seen the example of China, how technology can be used to reinforce that control. Mm -hmm. Now, I think China will eventually fall because I think dictatorships will never survive forever, but they can survive for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And we'd rather not live through one of those periods of time if we can possibly help it. Your friend, Mr. Trudeau, really, I think, he he's not competent enough to be dangerous in this regard, but he's doing immense damage, I think, to the culture of your country and you know, mm -hmm. feeding the polarization of the country. And unfortunately, the consequences of that don't go away overnight. I think he's perhaps dangerous because he's a, a weaker man and not able to have conversations that matter. And uh, I also like to self-check myself on uh, the idea of, is Canada an authoritarian country? I do like that self-check because the idea that it might be is quite terrifying. So a, a good measure of whether or not you're living in an authoritarian country is, can you have a gay pride parade? Are you allowed to protest? Um, we right now are, but also when I look at like the definition of a dictator, when I look at what's happening in Canada, I've been paying close attention to politics the last two years. And when I look at the bills that Trudeau is trying to pass, it is my belief that the only thing that actually protects us from becoming an authoritarian country is free speech. And what we've seen in the last year is peaceful protests uh, being 
dealt with with violence with the emergency act you had uh trudeau use horses to trample peaceful protesters who were praying for the police on the other side you had the freezing of bank accounts he's currently trying to pass laws where you can arrest people and seize property without due process that's no longer a democracy he's creating censorship bills uh, he's creating a hate speech bill that says if you think your neighbor might use hate speech you can snitch on them he's creating snitch bills so that's like pre-crime so all of these bills um so in a democracy you're innocent until proven guilty all of these things that he's doing is guilty until proven innocent and that does worry me quite a bit as well as his language um, using hate speech against his own citizens trying to divide people in order to maintain power forming an ndp coalition that no one voted for that's not democracy um, they also passed a bill the other day without inviting all the mpps and they passed it at night after hours there's a lot of very very scary things not to mention the fact that he expresses praise for countries like China. And I see countries like China and think, I don't want us to be anything like that. And here's the thing. When I think about climate change in relation to authoritarianism, I've even tried to go to the place where I think maybe it actually is that bad that we do need to control citizens in that way maybe this is actually best for everyone that we do need this type of top-down totalitarian control and i can't accept it because of things like uh not treating us like adults withholding important information lying to us taking control of the media so because it's done through lies and deceit um i just can't see it as a, a good thing that benefits all of us no absolutely at the end of the day, if a cause is right, then it can be supported by the truth. Mm -hmm. I mean, That's right. Surely. Okay, there are going to be times when it's difficult. So one of the tricks, if you're in politics, of course, is that there will be times when maybe you need to raise taxes. And of course, no citizens in the history of humankind probably have ever welcomed that as a process and, and that has created a few revolutions in its time. Of course, that's exactly what should be happening now in some ways, uh, in countries like the UK anyway, where the government spent a vast amount of money supporting people who were not working at the moment because the government had prevented them from working. So the government spent a huge amount of money. Well, probably then you need to raise taxes to pay some of it back. There are no free lunches and so on, except, of course, that they find ways to do it that isn't called raising taxes but just makes you poorer anyway so that is traditionally how governments have sort of tried to get away from that sort of thing but i sympathize with that i sympathize with the fact that in a democracy sometimes difficult decisions need to be taken and populations don't like them mm -hmm. sometimes they'll recognize that they were necessary sometimes they won't and if you're in one of those cycles where they won't then you can have you can be on to nothing you know, you can have no way of winning whatsoever as a politician. Fine, okay, I will cry tears up to a point for that. 
However, I don't think that's the situation in Canada uh, right now. I think the choices that are being taken, the measures that they're taking go well beyond any description you've got there. I think in the UK, we, the trouble in the UK is that we have a non-ideological government, but we have an incompetent government. Mm. So they are just not very good at executing on pretty much anything because the prime minister is a walking disaster area. It just creates chaos wherever he goes internally. Um, and, and it's hard to manage a major operation on a constant basis of chaos. Yeah, there are times when you could get away with it. And there are times when it might even be useful, but that's not really the times that we're living in right now. So this is the challenge that we have. We have some serious problems to face. Mm -hmm. uh, we have polarised polity. We have poor quality leadership in just about everywhere except the place that's getting bombed at the moment. And what do we do about that? Mm -hmm. One of the big challenges is how do we up the quality of leadership? Because if you look at the, you know, the, the American elections, the, the United States elections, where you're still the world's primary superpower, still at the moment, maybe that's going to end soon. And the last time, what choice did we have there? You know, we had the, the, the ridiculous to the ridiculous. <laughs> you, you had two old geezers who would be batting each other with their walking sticks basically and this was the best what we could come up with mm. from the whole of the united states of america i don't think so but we have systems that weed out the competent that weed out the pragmatic and at the moment are just rewarding the polarized and the ideological that's not a system that's going to serve us very well going into the future so i don't know how we fix that well i, I think Getting involved is important. Uh, I was listening to Sad God talk about the psychology of who people vote for. And unfortunately, sometimes it's as superficial as some how someone looks. So Trudeau looked appealing. Barack Obama looked appealing. He, he knew how to speak well, where someone like Trump, who's orange and aggressive, and it, like people just weren't going to vote for him in the same way. But the problem with politics, and, and I'm sure you've experienced this because you left politics, now that I'm involved and looking at these bills and often watching our um, parliamentary debates, the problem that I see is you have great members of parliament and they go to the house and they go and speak, at least in Canada, it's a clown show. The conservatives ask very reasonable questions like, how much is this going to cost? And the liberals refuse to answer the question and they dance around and talk about uh, colonialism or whatever they want to talk about. And it's like, no, no, no. The question is, how much does it cost? It gets asked seven or eight times. We have a speaker of the house that's completely useless. He's supposed to be a mediator. I think until you actually change that system. And it's funny because it comes back to conversation. Conversation isn't happening in the house it's not happening so how do you make change if that system is broken yes i tend to think that the the uk system as it was tended to push parties to the center ground because when you were elected then our governments were 
because of the electoral system, they tended to be able to govern. They, they would have a majority in the House and they could operate as the executive and the legislature. Once they'd been elected, they had the power. And because they had the power, they could be held to account. And that tend, and because the population, the British population tend to live in the centre, ultimately, if you wanted to be elected, you were pulled into the centre. Every now and then a party like the Labour Party would go after the left. They just had um, a leader, Jeremy Corbyn, who was very much of the left, and they became unelectable until they got rid of him and started to come back to more sort of sensible, grounded policies that the population identified with, they would not be electable. The downside, of course, is once they're elected, then they can mess it up. They have the power. Now, the challenge in the United States is that they so distrust government, going right back to the founders of the Constitution, that they don't let them have power. You know, the president can be elected, but then they won't have both houses. And if they have one for two years, then they'll lose it in the midterms. And so you end up unable to govern. And because you're unable to govern, you can always point to the other side and say, we would have done this, but it's their fault. They stopped us. And that means there are no consequences to what you do. And that has led the parties to go to further and further to the extremes because there's no cost to it. Mm -hmm. You know, when they go to the extremes, it excites their base. And because both of them are doing it, there's no sensible center ground that people can be attracted to. And they can be as extreme as they want, because when they're elected, they'll be blocked from doing anything anyway. So they don't have to suffer the consequences of their position. Now, I don't know the dynamic as well for how that's playing out in Canada. I mean, obviously, Trudeau had a pretty close call with his most recent election, having arrogantly called it, believing that he would just get his, his topped up mandate and it didn't turn out to be quite so easy. So you would hope at least that that would have made them a little bit more humble, but it doesn't sound as though that's been the case. So there's no telling political stupidity sometimes. No, he's got quite the ego. And unfortunately, the way that our system is structured, it has to do with seats in the House, not the most amount of votes. So I think only 30% of people actually even voted for him. But then he takes the king's throne thinking everyone loves and supports him. And that's just, it's actually not true. There's not a lot you can do about that in that every electoral system is imperfect. There, there is no perfect system. If you get one that reflects majority votes, then it has other downsides. I think the UK system, the UK system is not fair in terms of reflecting numbers of votes in the same way that you described, but it does provide strong governments. Mm. And there's a good argument as to why that's a good thing, why that's a healthy thing, but it's less democratic because it doesn't reflect the overall votes. I've spent many years of my life living in safe seats where one party got so many of the votes that really I could have voted for anyone. It would have made no difference whatsoever. My vote didn't count uh, de facto. So you get a lot of that happening, but you do get strong governments. Whereas in America, you know, you've got a, a more even system when it comes to the presidential elections, but then you get very weak government that mm -hmm. can't really do anything regardless of who got elected. Mm -hmm. And so whatever you get, you're never going to get the perfect system. But what you do need is something that enforces a degree of reality. Mm -hmm. and, and I do think that if you can't get away from what people in the country really think, you can't 
pull the wool over their eyes by saying one thing and then legislating another thing or just doing it with impunity because there's no way of holding you to account then ultimately i think that works out for the best but you know unfortunately political realities have always through history been less than satisfactory when politicians do what the people pressure them to do so honestly i think the solution really does lie in the average person fighting back against things like censorship demanding to actually be treated like an adult and being told all the information holding our leaders accountable when they do lie or they do withhold things or they do create a policy that's not working instead of just staying in our echo chambers and living a lie whether you're on the left or the right um because that's where i'm trying to find myself more and more not getting pulled one way or the other by these extremes by these alarmist news headlines but trying to actually sort through it all and say well what's actually happening and listening to both sides still not always just listening to the conservative podcasts or the the liberals actually taking time to listen to both sides and sorting through some of that material yes and remember to stay positive as well because the news media and the commentariat media both mainstream and independent to a large extent have a business model that tends to encourage focusing on the negative Mm -hmm. You know, bad news sells, that has been the case for hundreds of years. And with social media, that bad news can be very compelling and very viral and very immediate. And I see a lot of people who absolutely dwell in all of this. In fact, a lot of the eco campaigners who have created waves of eco anxiety through the young people across the world do it because they are wallowing in all of this. And it becomes so viscerally real to them. They can't understand why people are walking around and apparently thinking that everything's normal. You know, how could they be? And it's because you've lost perspective by allowing yourself to get sucked into this negative mindset. We all believe that negative things are much more common than they actually are because they're the things that we see in front of us. There was a study just a week or two ago about how... I think it was the American population, or it might have been the British population, how they thought that sort of like 40% of the population were black, for instance, and 20% were trans, and 50% were gay. And when you added all of the percentages up, it came to something like 200% of people. And this was because this was what they were seeing. You know, the mainstream media, the liberal left, which is most of the mainstream media in, in the United States, was doing stories, you know, fueled by their, you know, I'm sure absolutely genuine concern for diversity and so on. But they were only featuring black people and gay people and trans people and all of these. And because people were seeing so many of these stories, they assume that this is a bigger part of life because that's what they were seeing. They were seeing 50% of stories about black people being shot by policemen. So they assume that the majority of people who get shot are black and they're being shot by policemen because that's what they see. Mm -hmm. And all the police the pandemic, that. people mm -hmm. thought that 7% of people in the UK had died with the pandemic and it was something like 0.07%. <laughs> so our ability to understand really that actually there's a lot of good stuff out there Mostly we do well as a species, 
mostly we're kind to each other, mostly we're getting wealthier, not, not as fast now as we used to, but still we're doing pretty well when you think about where we could be. Not to get sucked into that, I mean, alarmist to some extent, just a negative media bias thing, and let that overly shape how you see the world. Because if you think that the world's bad and out to get you, it, that damages you far more than, you know, it, than it merits. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's like keeping yourself safe from a disease, from locking yourself in your home and, and never leaving. Um, and it doesn't work. Like if, if I think that the world is going to end in 10 years because of climate change, well, I'm not even going to try anymore. Why would I even recycle if it's actually that bad? So I think you really hit the nail on the on the head there. Believing in, I love to believe in people. I love to believe in humankind not so much my leaders. And that's where I get to rattle some heads and ask important questions and uh, keep bothering people with my questions. <laughs> yes, well, that, that should be the strength of our system. Democracies do well because bad ideas can get challenged and then practice improves. The dictatorships, the autocracies ultimately fail because they don't allow that feedback. So mm -hmm. bad policies continue because nobody dares to challenge them. And then sooner or later, the consequences of those bad policies come home to roost. That, for me, is the strength of our system. But it only works if mm -hmm. people are allowed to challenge and to ask questions and to raise objections. Otherwise, the system fails. Mm -hmm. and, and that is the whole point. And to a large extent as well, so there's that side and the other side is that we need to get back to the mindset that we used to be in. And in part, we still are. I mean, we still have um, elite sporting institutions will understand how you train people to be strong and resilient. But we used to do that as a society. We used to see education as a process of preparing young people to be strong and resilient in the face of the challenges of life. We have now decided as a society that instead we are going to work out how to protect young people from the challenges of life. And that leaves them weak and enfeebled. And of course, sooner or later, you can't protect people. You've grown government as big as you can possibly support with taxes to try to protect people. And you can't ultimately. So you stopped training them to be strong and resilient. And that has turned out to be a massive mistake. Now, you can't have that conversation without people accusing you of being callous, of wanting to kill grandma and all of that kind of stuff. But in 1957, we had the Asian flu and people just got on with life. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not saying it was necessarily the exact right thing that we should have done this time, but there should have been some ground between that and what we actually did, which mm -hmm. was to pretend that we could protect everyone by locking them away forever. And of course, you can't. Mm -hmm. So sooner or later, you have to say, no, we're not going to teach you to be scared of this. We're going to teach you to be brave in the face of it, because ultimately you will do better and society will do better if that is our general mindset. Mm -hmm. And of course, when that happens, some people will not do well by it. But then people didn't do well by it anyway. Mm -hmm. The virus gets got to people sooner or later. Regardless of what we did, it's just that by the time it did, we had trained ourselves to be super scared and we had trained ourselves to be 
compliance to authoritarian dictates. Mm. And so the problem there wasn't the virus, it was whether or not what we did in response to it was worse than the actual disease. Now I say that carefully because there were people who made that argument in an extreme form that I wouldn't associate myself with. But ultimately you do ask the question, are we training ourselves to be strong and resilient and to be adaptive to challenges or are we training ourselves to be weak and enfeebled? It's a choice. We could do a whole podcast just on that. I mean, uh, I've seen that pendulum swing and and perhaps we were too harsh and self-serving before, but we absolutely have swung way far to that other side of of feebleness and weakness and requiring uh, safety at all costs. And that's, I think the most profound thing to end it, the, the best thing that you said at the end here was just always challenging bad ideas that's how we move forward. And that's also going to require an element of strength in you. Can't, are you brave enough to say these things out loud? Maybe podcasts is how we change the world. Are you able to challenge bad ideas? Well, it's as good a thing to try as any, isn't it, really? I, <laughs> I genuinely believe that when we have been at our best, it was when we had the most interesting conversations because we spoke honestly and we listened to each other and treated each other with the respect to at least try to understand people's positions. And then for sure, arguing against them if we think they're wrong, but listening, respecting and understanding doesn't seem to me to be so improbable that we could work our way back to that mindset. That sounds dangerously reasonable. Uh, well, Malin, thank you so much for your time here. I could listen to you all day. I'm I'm a big fan of the show. If uh, people would like to uh, hear more from you, where, where can they find more of your material, your podcasts? So the, the easiest way is to go to the YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube and you simply search on my name, M-A-L-L-E-N, Malin Baker, then as far as I'm aware, I'm the only one. So you should find me pretty easily. Okay. Well, thanks again so much. I'd love to have you back. Um, you speak on so many issues. So um, thanks again for your time today. I really enjoyed this. Carlo, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Hey guys, Carla here again. If you like this week's podcast, please consider hitting the subscribe button and telling your friends. It helps us a lot. We'll see you guys next time.